0: Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the your the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. Netsuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one slash James, netsuite.com slash James. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show, I am so sick and tired of this election. You know why? It's because I feel like if you go on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, everybody is just fighting for sport. Like, it's not like you're going to argue with somebody on Facebook and they're going to be convinced, and that one vote that you just convinced is going to swing the entire election. Every time you argue about politics on Facebook, and then, and then oh, I, you know, you're wrong about Biden or Trump. Like He's a fascist. He caused this. He caused that. He will cause this. He's a communist. He's a so Like, send. Boy, I showed them. I showed them who's boss. And now maybe they'll vote the way I want them to vote. So I have two votes now instead of one because I just convinced someone to vote just like me. That never happens. And instead, every time you hit reload, oh, did they reply? Did they reply to my great argument? Facebook makes another penny. Twitter makes another penny. This election is just a money-making machine for Facebook and Twitter. Let me just go down Twitter for a second, just to, just to see, like every single post. Here's the Dems are asking for $600 a week. Uh, at this point, I'd still vote for him even if he buried the tax man in the backyard. Uh, I don't even know, I guess he's talking about Trump there. Uh, here's another one. Um, switching gears a bit, re-colon Trump. Seriously doubt that person was switching gears. Um, here's a letter from the director of the CIA that somebody just reposted all about Hillary Clinton and whatever. Um, here's a friend of mine saying, this is what democracy looks like. 35 days till election day, still plenty of ways to help. Please don't sit this one out. All right. Um. And then uh, just on and on. I am not a Trump fan. However, this whole narrative around his taxes is so interesting. Yes, I would prefer to read Trump's tax returns than watch Game of Thrones. Is that what that person's saying? So that's Facebook. Let's just hit the homepage of Twitter. It's something I almost never do. Uh, let's see. What's the first one? presidential debate tonight. Who will be watching? Oh, it's such a fun sport. People are already saying this is, you know, this is all just about entertainment because people are already predicting if this were pay-per-view, it would make more money than any boxing match. So it's completely about entertainment because how many issues do you actually know? I mean, do you know how many people are incarcerated in the United States and how many people are incarcerated for violent crimes versus nonviolent crimes? I don't know. Do you know what the issues are around legalization of certain drugs or why farmer prices are so high? Or do you even know what tariffs are? Most people don't even know what tariffs are. Sometimes I get confused about it, but let's take a giant step back. Everybody's voting on whether or not they like someone. Like I hear this a lot, like, you know, I'm not usually a Democrat, but I just don't like Trump personally, or I'm not usually a Republican, but, Biden's got dementia or whatever. So there's all these like BS personal reasons that people are justifying voting. But I think the reality is nobody really knows why they're voting. They're voting because, I don't know, they don't like somebody or they're voting because their friends are voting for somebody or their spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or their parents or their teachers or their local community. Like if you live in New York City, if you wear a MAGA hat, you're going to get beaten up. But if you're in some other town that, you know, I think more rural or whatever. And if you wear a Biden hat or a shirt, you'll probably get beaten up there. Like a lot of people are beating each other up over this stuff. So, so I want to go over, I want to take a step back from the men and women who are running. Joe Jorgensen is running for the libertarian candidate uh, for president. I want to take a step back from the men and women. And I want to just give a cocktail party view of the isms so what is marxism socialism capitalism trumpism bidenism yes there is a bidenism yangism clintonism these are all important things to understand let's focus on just in very briefly what all these philosophies are how they intersect i'm going to throw in fascism as well how they intersect with each other and then you can decide, oh, that philosophy sounds good. And then you could say to yourself, I want to endorse policies that push forward this particular ism in the best possible way. And then you start to ask, what is the candidate who most closely aligns with the ism I believe in, with the political philosophy I believe in? And again, this is some, I know this is something that a lot of people don't wonder about because how is it possible that if let's say the Democrats have an opinion on 100 issues ranging from taxes to hydroxychloroquine, how is it the case that 50 million people believe the exact same thing about all 100 issues and then 50 million other people believe the exact opposite about all 100 issues? That's kind of impossible. It's never gonna be the case that 50 people agree on, you know, that 50 million people agree on 100 different issues issues so what it tells me is you, you, oh, oh because I'm team blue or team red I have to believe in all the issues colored red or colored blue without even really understanding them like I agree a lot of people are worried about climate change and and pollution which are two different things by the way and there's lots of causes for the world world heating but I bet you most people don't really know all the issues around climate change and how to solve it and how to pay for it and how historically, uh, climate, uh, disruptions have been solved. So I'll just give you one quick example, which you probably know already, but in 1899, the biggest environmental issue was the fact that horses would shit on the streets. So on wall street every day, they would have to clear like a foot or so worth of horse manure in order to be ready for the next day. So the entire city smelled like horse manure and they didn't know where to put it. Where did you put all this shit? But how did it solve itself? It didn't solve itself through massive spending. It's solved itself because of technology. So cars were more or less invented or made useful. And a few years later, everyone was driving a Model T car and that solved the environmental issue of the 1890s. Will the same thing happen now? Will some amazing technology solve climate change? We don't really know, but the answer is probably yes. Like you look at solar panels, it used to be, so the problem with a solar panel is the sun hits it and some amount of energy from the sun is converted by the solar panel into energy that could be then used to fuel a house or you know whatever, a factory, a building. And it used to be, solar panels were not very efficient. They would maybe take only 3% of the sun's energy that was hitting the panel and convert that into energy. But every couple of years, that efficiency doubles. And now they're working on materials that could be 50% efficient or more. So technology in general will solve many of the problems that we're worried about, whether or not we even were worried about climate change, just indirectly, a lot of technological changes are being worked on right now, which could solve major issues about climate change, about medical care, and so on. So all this is to say issues are very complicated and very nuanced. We don't really know personally Joe Biden. We don't really know as much as we think we know Donald Trump. We don't really know him. I mean, I'll just address one, one thing about each one of them. Everybody says Joe Biden has dementia. I'm not a doctor. I can't comment on that. Does he have gaffes? Yes, but he's had gaffes ever since he first ran for president in 1988. Maybe he's experienced some cognitive decline, but the guy's, I don't know, 77 years old. The Democrats elected him, so they must have some confidence. Also, what every president tends to do is they hire people who are good at what they do. Joe Biden is not gonna run the Treasury Department. He will hire some expert banker or whatever, or financier who will run the treasury department. Joe Biden doesn't know everything about energy. He would hire someone to run the energy department. Same thing with Trump. Trump is not an expert on, I don't know, housing and urban development. He'll, or education. He'll hire people to do these things. We may not like his hires, but we may like them. So this is really, if you really care about America and you have some idea about what the American dream is. Let's focus for a second on political philosophy. And again, that means I'm gonna explain the sort of popular ones, Marxism, socialism, capitalism, and then how it applies to the different candidates, like I'll call it Obamaism and Trumpism and Bidenism. Why am I going over the prior presidents like Obama or Clinton is because current philosophies might be related to older philosophies and whether they worked or not. It's also worth understanding, let's not get bogged down by what the media says are issues. Because every day I feel like the media is giving us another issue like, oh, Trump's tax returns. Oh, this woman accused Joe Biden of rape in 1993. And I'm not discounting the importance of any of these things. They do speak to the person's character, but obviously we're not gonna learn anything new between now and the election on any of these issues. And so you're gonna have to focus on how these people govern what, uh, what their political philosophies are, and, and so on. So things like, you know, Trump said this, or Trump did that, or or Biden did this, none of that matters because we're not going to make we're, we're, the people on the fence or, or really basically everybody should vote based on what they believe in as opposed to who they like because you don't really know these candidates. And again, let me set the stage with just one thought, which is what is a good political system? That's a very broad question. All of these things, by the way, are gonna be very broad. It's not like I'm gonna explain Marxism in one minute and you'll know completely about Marxism. It's impossible. Nobody knows completely about Marxism because most of these isms are BS. But I will explain everything simple enough. Literally, my goal is, is that we'll all, me included, we'll all be able to go to a cocktail party and know more than anyone else The difference between Marxism and capitalism and Bidenism and so on. But I'm also assuming that we're in a, what's called a reasonable and rational political system. So the U.S. is a reasonable political system. And by that, I mean, there's multiple voices and opinions, and some of them cannot be reconciled with each other. So somebody might believe that you use the death penalty to fight crime. And another person might say, you never use the death penalty. Some people are pro-choice and other people are pro-life and they will never agree with each other. Never, ever. The pro-life people believe that abortion is killing babies. They're never going to agree with the pro-choice people. So both are completely reasonable political opinions that have lasted for decades. And those people are not going to agree. But in a reasonable system, people who don't agree come together and they say, listen, we're going to vote. We're going to vote for congressmen, senators, mayors, governors, presidents. Sometimes we're going to vote on issues. And sometimes we're not going to agree. The person you vote for is different from the person I vote for. And if your person wins, the one thing we all agree on is that the system itself works. And so we agree that consensus will allow us to elect a president for four years, and then in four years we have a chance again to elect another president, or four years after that, and so on. So it's reasonable in the sense that just because you don't agree with me, and just because your issues or candidates win, it doesn't mean I'm gonna hate you or go to war in, in the best case. Now, sometimes it might mean I hate you, and sometimes it might mean the country goes to war, but that's, that's rare, and the hate thing shouldn't happen. Politics, believe it or not, it seems like a huge thing, but much better to love your family, love your community, do things that take action that better the world. And these things have nothing to do with politics directly. The other thing about a good political system is not only is it reasonable, meaning we all, you know, vote and a consensus decides who wins and we all respect who wins, so that's reasonable. The other thing about a political system is that it's rational. So what does rational mean? Particularly when two people believe in different things. For me, rational means you're gonna vote in your best interest. And that sounds selfish, but let me ask, when have you ever not voted in your best interest? Maybe you have once or twice, but in general, you've probably always voted in your best interest. Now, does best interest mean, give me a billion dollars, that's my best interest? No, because that's not the issue on the table. There's no issue that says, should we all give James a billion dollars? No, that's not on the ballot. But my best interest might be lower taxes or my best interest might be higher taxes for billionaires so that more people can benefit from welfare programs or infrastructure programs or whatever, or or healthcare research. I don't know. If we all act in our best interest, it's not horrible, but... I will assume, and this is important, best interest also includes, when I'm thinking about my best interests, I'm also thinking about my family. I'm thinking about my children. Certainly, I'm not going to vote for anything that's against my children's best interest. I would not vote for a draft, for instance. I'm not a big believer in war, and I would never want my daughters and son to be drafted into a war. So I'm thinking of the best interests of my children. I'm also thinking of the best interests of my community. So if I live in North Dakota and I want a lot of jobs to happen in North Dakota, I'd probably vote for a candidate that believes in the fracking of oil. So North Dakota benefits huge financially when there's fracking. So rational for me is to vote for a policy which creates more jobs in my community, maybe prosperity for my family and you know, maybe more freedom for me in some way. Again, reasonable and rational. Rational sounds selfish, but it isn't when you think about it. But let's just assume that's what we're all doing. All right, let's begin with the isms. Because everybody loves to have a shortcut to complicated political beliefs. So some complicated political beliefs are nicely summed up by Marxism, socialism, and so on. And just one more comment. I know I always have these extended intros, but Marxism, if I went to a professor and I said, tell me what Marxism is, they would not be able to answer. You would think, oh, maybe it's in, if I read Karl Marx's famous books about Marxism, then I'll know everything there is to know about Marxism. No, there's Marxist Leninism. There's uh, intersections between Marxism and socialism. There's classical Mar- uh, Marxism. There's there's all sorts of different types of Marxism. There's There's no one def- definition of socialism. There's no one definition of capitalism. So bear with me. You might disagree with some of the things I say, but this is intended to give you a 30,000 foot view, but hopefully more understanding about these isms than you had before. I'm hoping to, to bring some some uh, something new to each one of these. And most importantly, you'll be able to show up at your neighbor's dinner party and be able to talk intelligently about the difference between, I don't know, socialism and Bidenism. And again, I'm gonna keep it simple You might've heard definitions elsewhere, but this is my way of looking at it. This is my simple way of understanding it. So, okay, let's go. Marxism. Basically in Marxism, there are two main groups of people. There are the owners or sometimes called the landlords. And there's the workers sometimes called by Marx himself, the proletariat. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick with owners and workers and The owners own like the factory or the business and the workers are creating the value for the business. And the problem is, the the problem that Marxism underlines and tries to solve is that whenever the owner is getting profit from the workers, then that's bad. So what does that mean? It means the workers are creating $50 of value, but they're only getting paid $10. So the owner gets to keep $40. So that's a disconnect. Whenever there's a disconnect financially between one group of people and another group of people, it means the lower group, the workers in this case, are being exploited. And eventually it will lead to what's called class struggle. There's the rich class and the poor class. And eventually they will struggle. And that struggle will get bigger and bigger because more and more money will be accumulated by the owners. And so that difference between the workers and the owners will get bigger. And eventually there will be a revolution. And at the end of the revolution, a lot of these class problems will be solved. There'll be more, the classes will be equal. So that's the that's theoretically an idealistic view of Marxism. And again, if there's any professors listening to this, then you could just go screw yourselves because that is the definition of Marxism that will work 99999 percent of the time. Here's one criticism of Marxism is that sometimes workers do things for other reasons than owners. For instance, a worker might be younger and is learning a trade. So of course they're creating value for an owner who's more experienced, who's already been through it and and so on. But let's even say that aside, there's going to be this permanent class struggle. That's Marxism. Are there any Marxist countries? No, because Marxism is very theoretical. You could say communism is related to Marxism. We're gonna, oh, I'll talk about communism right now. Communism is basically an extreme form of socialism. So actually let's do socialism first. Socialism, socialism is when you have this perceived injustice. I just described how, the owners accumulate money off of the backs of the workers. The workers are working really hard and they, may, they, they work for $10 worth of work and the owner sells what they'd made for $50. So there was this $40 profit. Socialism tries to identify these disconnects and then maybe through regulations or what's called redistribution, tries to correct them. So socialism might say, all right, the owners are making a lot of money The workers are not making as much money, but they're creating all the value for the owners, uh, which ignores the fact that the owners, you know, do the selling and took the risk and, and so on. But that aside, let's say they didn't. Socialism says, okay, let's take some money from the owners and just give it to the workers so the workers can afford similar things as the owners, like healthcare and shelter and clothing and some luxuries and some vacation time. This is a very reasonable approach. You say, "Oh, the owners didn't are not working that hard, but they're making more money. Let's move money around and make it a little bit more fair." So that's an idealistic view of socialism. Correct the imbalances that have been identified by Marxism and redistribute the money so that the workers get some of it that they didn't get before. Now, some people will disagree with this definition of socialism, but it's the definition that works in practice. So some people will say, no, the way the way you get socialism is when the employees own part of the company. So the work they do, they can feel the value of because the value of the company goes up. That's not really in practice how socialism works. You know, that tends to be more, you see that like uh, employee ownership in Silicon Valley and You know, I tends to, I tend to view that as more what's usually called capitalist, but socialists and Marxists, I would say are the most annoying people on the planet because like, I'm just going to read, here's a, here's a sentence about Marxism. Marxism is a method of socio-economic analysis that uses a materialist interpretation of historical development, better known as historical materialism, to understand class relations and social conflict, as well as a dialectical perspective to view social transformation. Blech. Who could even tell you what that sentence means? Again, just rewind this. You know what Marxism is in a sentence. Socialism is a system to redistribute the wealth to kind of correct the imbalances identified by Marxism. So what's capitalism? Well, here's the interesting thing. Capitalism is bullshit. Excuse my language. Most people don't realize this. Capitalism is a philosophy basically developed by a young man named Karl Marx. So Karl Marx, what is happening when the owner, it makes $50 and they pays the worker 10? Well, the owner is accumulating capital. And so Karl Marx views that as very bad because that's what leads to, as I said earlier, that's what leads to class struggle. And he calls that accumulation of extra capital, excess capital, capitalism. So capitalism is a Marxist word. So a Marxist would say that capitalists exploit and oppress the worker. And then, so eventually, if you do that long enough, if you if you kick someone around long enough, they're gonna fight back. So eventually capitalism leads to a revolution and then more socialism and then eventually uh, what's called communism. So let's, let's take a little detour towards communism. What's communism? Well, there's again, no definition. You have communism under Lenin, so that's called Leninism. You have Stalinism, you have Maoism in China. It's all a little different, but basically, communism is extreme socialism. The government controls everything in the economy. Nobody, no individual owned. There's no owners. Everybody's a worker. And the, the head of the country is just the the first worker, but has no, in a, in an idealistic communist society, the president is just like any other worker, which is why you see these pictures of Maoists. even Mao wears the same clothes as the farmers and the workers and so on. So, uh, communism attempts to solve all of the injustices. There's no owners. Everybody gets equal share of everything. And the state, the government controls what everybody does. Oh, you're a chemist. You're a librarian. You're going to war and so on. So that's communism. And has it worked? Well, uh, the biggest experiments in communism are Soviet Union obviously did not work. People were hungry. There was war. There was, uh, it all fell apart. And then there was China with Mao, both in Russia and in China. Tens of millions of people were killed. So one way that communists got rid of the ownership class is by killing most of them in both Maoism and Stalinism. And I don't know, China, you know, Russia fell, Soviet Union fell apart and is now mostly, a fascist slash, you know, capitalist society. And China has become much more capitalist and they've done a really good job of it. I would say they're doing almost a better job of it than the US, but that has issues as well. So if if capitalism is bullshit, if communism doesn't work, if socialism is just kind of like an eraser to Marxism, it's kind of like the functional implementation of Marxism, What what does the US live in? Well, I'm going to define a new one. And this, this will win over big at the cocktail party, but I think this makes sense. And I I spoke about this uh, a little bit with John Mackey, who's the uh, founder of whole foods when he was on the podcast, but let's call, let's call what's in the U S innovationism. And this will make a lot more sense. Why is the U S the biggest economy in the world? Why is it the most prosperous economy in the world? Well, Guess where things are invented? Like the computer was invented here. The car invented here. The airplane invented here. You know, most medical drugs invented here. All of the biggest inventions of the past 200 years were basically invented in America. And because of that, America sold these items to the rest of the world. And those things ranged from computers down to pencils. After World War II, a young man by the name of Armin Hammer went over to Russia and sold them a billion pencils and that's how he began his road to to wealth. So the US, I don't know why, maybe it's because we had this frontier, I shouldn't say we, I wasn't here, but maybe because Americans had this frontier like attitude that once we hit the frontier, California, maybe it switched to the technological world and we started innovating, you know, hitting the frontier there. But The U.S. is where there's the most innovations happen. So so you can argue innovationism, a philosophy which encourages private individuals to invent, and and how would you encourage them? Well, maybe you have monetary incentives. Maybe there's special awards. Maybe there's special kind of security. Basically, someone should benefit. The more they innovate and invent, the more they benefit. Now, this is very different from Marxism because they shouldn't benefit. If they invent a new kind of toilet, it should be for the benefit of all and they shouldn't expect any extra benefit. But that's just not how primates work. Like if if a primate 2 million years ago was the one to kill the lion for everybody to eat, that primate would probably be the alpha of the tribe and would eat more than everyone else and would have more access to a spouse than everyone else. So this is not a new thing, being able to benefit from your accomplishments. It exists in primates. It's existed basically for all time. And all our neurochemicals are based on the anticipation of benefiting when we do something good and our close connections to the tribe when we do something good and our possible rejection from the tribe, which causes stress when we do something bad. So when I lose money, I feel stressed because cortisol spikes. The reason cortisol spikes in my brain is to trigger stress and panic because I might lose access to the tribe. The tribe may no longer protect me. So innovationism, again, is this philosophy that a society prospers the more it innovates. And you could decide for yourself whether that's true or not. I tend to think that is true, which is why the US is successful. And again, it's very different from capitalism, where capitalism is is when the owners just care about the accumulation of capital. There are many instances in the U.S. where entrepreneurs and the innovators, of course they cared about money. Everybody cares about money to some extent, but a lot of people, like the guys who started Google, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, just wanted to make a better search engine. They innovated a better search engine. And then guess what? They wanted to sell it for a million dollars. That's how much Larry Page and Sergey Brin They tried to sell Google to Excite, which was another search engine, for a million dollars. Excite said no. Excite offered 750,000. Larry Page and Sergey Brin said, yes, please give us 750,000. And then Excite said, ah, you know, we thought about it. You guys were a little too eager. No. So they had to build Google and take it public. And now they're worth, I don't know, 50 or $60 billion each. So was that because they were accumulating capital? A little bit, but mostly it's because they innovated a search engine that everybody on the planet uses. So does that mean it's unfair, the workers of Google compared to, you know, the wealth that Larry Page and Sergey Brin have? That's, that's for you to decide. If you're an innovationist, you would say some people are gonna benefit, some people won't benefit. And maybe you do need, you know, in America, there's a little bit of, not a little bit. There's a, a a moderate amount of redistribution that occurs. We get taxed. Our tax money goes to government employees. It goes to the post service. It goes to the military. It goes for intelligence agencies. It goes to, I don't know, uh, uh, welfare programs. And uh, there's some level of, of redistribution. Else there wouldn't be taxes. Or we would have minimal taxes. Enough taxes to pay for... Uh, maybe a small military and enough taxes to pay for the organization that collects taxes. And maybe that's it. Maybe there's taxes to pay for you know, foreign ambassadors so we can negotiate trade agreements, but whatever. So, so far we've covered Marxism, socialism, capitalism, which doesn't exist, and innovationism. What is America? Again, it's innovationism plus, with a little bit of a dash, of socialism and not not just a little dash probably a big dash i think the role of government is to protect those who are too weak to protect themselves so the government shouldn't protect everyone Um, even in the declaration of independence it basically says rights that are self-evident are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness by self-evident it means they've always been human rights and gov- and it says, government is basically there just to help us preserve those rights. Government doesn't give us those rights, government preserves them. So again, that's different from Marxism or socialism, where government gives you the rights that you could have and redistributes them when, it's not, when it views it as not fair. Innovationism is when I have the right to innovate whatever I want and benefit from it. And then America is somewhere in the middle well let's go straight into the political candidates let's look at what bidenism is and let's look at what trumpism is now bidenism of course joe biden has been a senator since the 70s He's been through all these different presidents, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, uh, Bush, Bush one, Clinton, Bush two, and then he was vice president under Obama. So it's worthwhile talking a little bit about the prior two Democratic presidents, Clinton and Obama. I think Clinton, well, well, actually, I'm going to take one step back. Somebody once asked me, what's the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans? And for that, like what, why isn't there a Republicanism and Democratism? Well, the reason is, is because those Democrats and Republicans do not have, those are political parties. They're not consistent political philosophies and they shouldn't be. There are Democrats who are pro-life and there are Democrats who are pro-choice. There are Democrats for higher taxes and there are Democrats for lower taxes I remember being a little kid and trying, like, I was practically crying. I was begging my dad to explain to me, why would someone be a Democrat and not a Republican? Or how do people decide what party they're in? And he just couldn't give me an answer. And the reason is, is because, I mean, even back in the 60s, Democrats are almost what you would call Republicans now and and vice versa. Do you know the first president to consider a UBI or universal basic income, which was um, brought up by uh, Andrew Yang, the a recent Democrat candidate for president and a recent guest on this podcast. The first president to bring up a UBI was Richard Nixon, a Republican. And Milton Friedman, a Republican or conservative economist, he came up with all sorts of economic theories around a UBI. He called it a negative income tax. So we'll talk more about that in a second. But all I'm saying is, re- there's no consistent political philosophy called Republicans or Democrats. So, leave them to the side for a second. But I would say Bill Clinton had a specific political philosophy, which is he wanted to basically, he, he was an innovationist. He didn't want to get in the way of innovation. A great innovationist thing that Clinton did was no sales taxes on the internet in the 90s. And that helped create the rise of the entire internet. But I think Clinton wanted to do the best by the most people. Often presidents are populist, which borders, you know, if you're trying to please the most people, there's going to be some socialist tendencies because most of the people are workers or middle class and they don't mind if money or resources are redistributed to them. So I would argue Clinton had a little bit of socialism, nothing wrong with that. And Obama, I would say, there was something very different about Obamaism, which is that on the one hand, I think Obama very much wanted to be friends with everybody. I mean, other countries. So whereas Bush, you know, the Bush doctrine, and I'm talking about w now, his doctrine was that if anybody bothers the United States, we should invade them with with or without consensus from other countries. But Obama worked very hard to do things as much as possible with consensus. so consensus with Republicans and Democrats, consensus with other countries, he didn't really do much. It's not like he got us out of the Iraq war. He didn't get us out of Afghanistan. But coming out of the great recession of 2008, he was very activist. He he bailed out some companies. He forced CEOs to resign from like General Motors, for instance. He he was very active in both foreign affairs in terms of developing relationships and friendships with other foreign leaders. And he was very active in the economy, in terms of uh not necessarily controlling uh companies, but being a lot more active in terms of using the government checkbook to solve problems. And so I would say Obamaism is very activist. I don't even want to say socialist, but he's not any more socialist than the US has been historically. But I would say he was very activist and very globalist. Like he was wanted to be, he thought that the best way to have a prosperous country was if the whole world was prosperous, which is true. Uh, And the way the whole world will get prosperous is if we're all friends, which may or may not be true. That's up to you to decide if if it worked or not. So Bidenism, I would say, is kind of a collection of, it's kind of like a hodgepodge of democratic beliefs over the course of the past few decades. But there's something unique about Bidenism, which is that part of Bidenism is something we haven't seen before in American politics. This is not even a philosophy, but it is part of where, where the Democrats are right now and Biden is right now. And again, this is a valid philosophy as well. Bidenism and Bidenists believe Donald Trump is an exception. He's a rarity in American politics. It's unusual that a reality TV star would be elected president. He's not a normal American leader. And so a big part of Bidenism is that removing Donald Trump from the presidency would solve many of the country's problems. And essentially after that, no other major changes in politics or our system of government should occur. My guess is if Biden is elected and Bidenism becomes the ruling political philosophy is that everything done by Trump will go away and then it'll be, the the political system will run like a machine the status quo will remain. Maybe some taxes will go up. Everybody who's afraid of like total socialism. I don't think that's Bidenist at all. Biden has been, you know, we know Biden is not a socialist. He's been around since the seventies. We basically know he just doesn't do much. He might, he might tweak some things. He might, uh, you know, he'll be a little bit more involved in social justice and getting the justice department involved in civil rights issues He might be a little bit more active in terms of uh, correcting some injustices that we see across the system. You know, small business loans for minority businesses. Let's reinstate Obamacare. Let's make more policies relating to climate change. So he'll be a little bit more activist like Obama. In general, I would say top three ways to describe Bidenism is remove Donald Trump from office, keep the status quo, and let's tweak some laws to handle social injustice. So that's Bidenism. Trumpism is a little different. Uh, let's let's start with the foreign affairs first. Trumpism is a, he's a unilateralist. This came up in my podcast with Ian Bremmer. So I was saying Trump is an isolationist. He just likes to focus on the U.S. I think that's partly true. But Ian Bremmer brought up the fact that Donald Trump is a unilateralist. He likes to make decisions. On his own, and then his point is nobody's going to disagree with him. Hey, where he'll he'll go to a country and say, hey, we're America, deal with it. So we want this from Canada, this from Mexico, this from Europe, this from Africa, this from China, and they all give it to him because that's why we've you know we have new deals with Mexico, a new a new trade deal that replaced NAFTA. We have a new trade deal with with Canada. We have new trade deals with the EU. We're working on new trade deals with China. We stopped funding. Iran, we pulled out of the Paris accords on climate change. So we basically unilaterally without worrying about our friendships, we unilaterally made decisions in America's what, what, Trump views as America's best self-interest. That's the foreign policy aspect of Trumpism. Don't do foreign policy to make friends do the foreign policy that in the short term works out to our best interests. And I say short-term because we don't, we can't really predict the long-term. I mean, if five years ago, someone asked you, hey, uh, Dave, where do you see yourself in five years? You would have had the wrong answer. You would have been wrong. You would not have seen yourself in the middle of a pandemic. So part of Trumpism is that we can't predict long in the future, but let's focus on right now, what is the best for the US? And on a smaller, on a domestic level, Trumpism is a little bit more libertarian. So, and I'll describe that in a minute, but Trumpism is reduce government. Don't get in the way of innovation. You know, basically that's it. He's he, he's not really an active president, oddly enough. He's a very, uh, he's a very much let things be. I, I've got the best experts working on everything. Let people make their own choices and decisions and let's fix all the problems in foreign policy. I would say that is the best summary of Trumpism. It borders a little bit innovationism because domestically, I think Trump does not wanna get in the way of American innovationism, except when it bothers him. And on foreign affairs, it's a very unilateral approach. Does it work? I don't know. Who knows what the longer effects are of all these countries disliking the US, but at the same time, They're all paying more money to the U.S. right now. Who knows the long-term effects of what's going to happen in the Middle East, but it's probably not so bad that Bahrain and UAE and maybe other countries are having good relations now with Israel. Who knows what happens with China, but it's probably not a bad thing that we're not subsidizing all, all manufacturing in China. Now, is this good or bad? You know, you could decide. Is Bidenism good or bad? You know, the status quo was working for most people for a long time. Who knows? Maybe it'll work again. So this is not about vote for Joe Biden or vote for Trump. I'm looking at this in a very impartial way. It's just explaining the differences between their different political philosophies. Trump, interestingly, I saw a video of him talking to David Letterman in 1986, I think. And even then he was complaining about tariffs and all the same things he's saying now. So he's been pretty consistent in his beliefs. Biden, I say, would has changed his beliefs over time. Nothing wrong with that. It's Some people view it as good that we have a candidate willing to change beliefs if he thinks he's wrong. And Trump might be stubborn, so who knows? Just I'm just laying out what the philosophies are. I skipped li- libertarians. Uh, so I actually think there's a lot to be said for the Libertarian Party, which is essentially that... Americans have certain inalienable rights, like their right to own their property and government can't get in the way of that. And the way you avoid government, the way you prevent government from getting in the way of your property and your other rights is you have no government. In, an ex- in extreme libertarianism, there's anarchy. So there's basically no government, nobody telling you what to do, everything's legal. And what happened, then you think, well, then everyone will just start murdering each other. No, because everyone's carrying a gun. So if you start murdering each other, you'll be murdered yourself very fast. Well, then you say, well, everybody will start stealing from each other. No, if you steal and they catch you, you're going to be in bigger trouble than if a modern day America catches you. So libertarian society or libertarian anarchy is is self-governing. Now, if they were elected, they wouldn't immediately become anarchists. Here's what a libertarian would do as soon as they took power. They would probably release all nonviolent criminals to have these people back in working in society. They would probably lower taxes to almost nothing. They would probably shut down a lot of government departments, particularly the military. They would, US government right now is in like, I don't know, 100 different countries with their military. So they would probably bring back almost all the military, if not all of it. They would probably sell off most battleships and aircraft carriers and things like that because you don't really need them if you have nuclear bombs. They would basically just say, hey, anybody who bothers us is going to get nuked and there's no in-between. So that, that's going to be their point of view. I'm, not, I'm just guessing this is what a libertarian would do. And basically they'll, they'll focus on in a purely innovation innovationism. And what about the people who are too weak to help themselves? Well, maybe uh, libertarians won't dismantle some social programs that help people who need the help. So we'll see. But libertarianism in general is all about people protect their own property, not government. So as few government decisions as possible, then that's what you should have. So that's libertarianism. And finally, I want to talk about fascism, which is often thrown around. Oh, Trump's a fascist or AOC's a fascist or who's a fascist? Well, when you think fascist, you think someone like Hitler who was obviously an extreme racist, militaristic and crazy and violent and he was a dictator. So all of these are somewhat components of fascism but you know just like stalinism isn't the same as marxism, hitlerism is not the same as pure fascism. So let me define fascism for you. Fascism is two things. One, a state run economy. So the state, the government, controls every aspect of the economy. Hitler controlled every aspect of the economy, turned it into a military economy. He decided what companies lived, what companies died. He decided what companies would get hired. Uh, It was all controlled by the state, just like Russia, just like China. So that's the first item of fascism, a state-controlled, 100% state-controlled economy, which implies totalitarianism there's one person who's a dictator who controls everything so that's that's implied with the state-controlled economy number two is in fascism there is some identity politics so when we think identity politics we think about the modern conception of it which is oh uh um Jewish and some things are important to Jews. And I don't, uh, you know, if you're, if you're anti-Semitic, I should make a law that where Jews, you know, get free rights, you know, equal rights in the workplace. Or, you know, if I'm a, a, a black lesbian woman, I need to make sure that there are laws protecting my rights. And so, so identity politics is when you associate yourself and your, your political needs with a much larger group determined by race or sex or gender or whatever else. And so you have an identity and you have politics for that identity. That's identity politics. Well, so what does this have to do with fascism? Well, guess what? Nazi Germany, if you were German, you had one set of politics that worked for you. And if you were Jewish or gypsy or black, you had a different set of politics. You'd go to a concentration camp, for instance. So so Germany had some aspects. Germany was Nazi Germany. Let's not forget that Nazis was shorthand for the real name for that political party, which was the National, the Nationalist Socialists. So fascism is sort of a nationalized socialism. Same thing with Italy with uh, Mussolini. I mean, let's not forget in and I'm happy to be corrected, but in Hitler's Germany, Hitler uh, instated a, a minimum wage. He had healthcare. He, uh, I'm not saying he's, he's good or bad. He's just saying he did many things that you can argue are related to aspects of socialism. Oh, well, this actually is, uh, describes a fascist manifesto written in 1919, which supported the creation of an eight-hour workday, a minimum wage, Worker representation in in management, uh, confidence in labor unions, uh, reorganization of the transportation sector, invalidity insurance, so better healthcare, reduction of the retirement age from sixty five to fifty five, a strong tax on capital, and so and on and on. And these were policies that the Italian fascists, which became Mussolini, these are policies that the Italians believed in, and these were policies that hitler initially believed in so i'm not saying people on the left are fascists it's just you can't automatically say like it bothers me when people say anybody's a fascist like donald trump's not a fascist because we don't live in a state-run economy and identity politics is probably of less concern to him than it is to alt alt left people now there's some aspects, I think, of Donald Trump that are fascist. Like, I think he's probably a bit more nationalist than than prior presidents. He definitely is. But all the presidents are proud of America and proud to be American. But, you know, I just think a lot of Trump's rhetoric sounds nationalist. Is he anti-Semitic, as many have accused? No. His grandchildren and his daughter, Ivanka, are Orthodox Jews. He's not anti-Semitic. Again, I'm not... I'm not saying pro or anti-Trump things. I just think all of these personal attacks and issues and personal issues are what I call idiot issues. When the the future of your country and political system is at risk, you're wasting your time arguing on Facebook about idiot issues. So what are some idiot issues? Uh, let's see, let us see. So, whether or not Trump or Biden use Adderall is an idiot issue. I would rather them use Adderall. Like if they're having cognitive problems, they should probably overuse Adderall and then just die when they're not president anymore. Like let them take Adderall. Their personal taxes, I don't care. Uh, Dementia, I don't care because I feel if they're both demented, they'll hire good people. Uh, Ukraine, I don't even know anymore what the issues were in Ukraine for Trump or for Hunter Biden, Like, was Hunter Biden corrupt? Of course, everybody is corrupt in politics. Did Trump ask for a quid pro quo? I hope he did. We were giving them hundreds of millions of dollars. He should ask for something. Uh, You know, I think whether uh, one candidate is pro-science or not, I don't think think either candidate is pro-science. I kind of think both candidates are, whatever science works to get me elected, that's the science I believe in. As far as I know, Trump followed Fauci's suggestions all the way. And as far as I know, Biden will also follow them. And so they both seem to have equal opinions on science. Pro-life versus pro-choice. I don't mean to call that an idiot issue, but I think 40 years ago, 50 years ago, if Roe versus Wade got repealed, then you couldn't, if you were a young lady, you couldn't get an abortion. But now- You could still get an abortion. It's just because not every, you know, most states will still be pro choice. And it's not that expensive now to travel and to most, you know, a lot of clinics offer free abortions. I'm not, and by the way, I don't think, I don't think Trump is pro life because being kind of an innovationist and hands off domestically, I don't really think, despite what he says, I don't think he has any strong feelings about pro life whatsoever. The guy is a New York liberal by birth. I don't think he's pro-life. And even the Supreme Court candidate he's nominated, Amy Barrett, she has said, despite her personal beliefs, that Roe versus Wade is a strong enough precedent that she would not vote to repeal it. And that's a whole different issue about Supreme Court justices, whether someone is an originalist or not, whether they believe in the original constitution or they believe that the constitution could evolve over time with precedents in which case you, you're fine with Roe versus Wade because it's a precedent on top, that sits on top of the constitution. But Amy Barrett has said, if many other precedents are based on this original precedent, then it should be considered as part of the constitution. And she did agree that Roe versus Wade has that status. So all these people who say she's gonna repeal Roe versus Wade, they are most likely wrong based simply on what she says. And you know, and also, Clearly, neither Biden. Well, we don't think Biden, but you know, Biden and Trump are not dictators. Uh, again, this is not a state-run economy. If anything, um, you know, there's a problem when you know we had to do bailouts, just like in 2009 with Obama and in 2020 because of the pandemic with Trump. But hopefully, those are one-time things, and eventually, American innovationism starts to roll again. So, what did I cover? You can now go to a cocktail party and talk intelligently about Marxism, socialism, capitalism, innovationism, uh, Democrats and Republicans, reasonable versus rational political systems, communism. Uh, oh, I wanted to talk a little about Yangism. So, Yang is clearly an innovationist, he is a tech guy through and through, but a little bit of Socialism and I, and, and again, I hate, almost hate using the word socialism because it's like people throw it around like it's an insult. But Yang's view is if innovationism is going to be good for the country but severely hurt a pocket of people, then those people should have an opportunity to be compensated so they can make the transition into the new world with the new innovations in action. So, and he uses what he calls a universal basic income let's pay everyone. A thousand dollars a month, so they could take a step back, learn new skills, not have to worry about how they're going to feed their family, and and so on. Now, Milton Friedman called that a negative income tax. Andrew Yang calls it a UBI. Alaska does a UBI, no real problems from it. And people say, well, will 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 there be an incentive to work? Yeah, very few people want to make just a thousand a month, so there'll be an incentive to work. And people say, well, how are you going to pay for this? Well, Andrew Yang. Uh, lays it out. He basically says there's something called a VAT tax, which is different than a sales tax. Sales tax is when you buy something at the cash register, you pay four or 5% more. That's like a a sales tax. Whenever you buy something for sale, you pay a little bit more and it goes to the government. A VAT tax, VAT is value-added tax. A VAT tax is when a product is being made at every step in the supply chain. Like, oh, first... We make the wheels, then we make the doors, then we put the wheels and the doors together, then we put the computer in it. And every step of the way towards making a car, there's a sales tax, except for when you sell to the customer. There's no sales tax then. So Andrew Yang has done the math a VAT tax plus cutting certain welfare programs. Would pay for a UBI, no problem, without any extra debt or anything. So I appreciate that. So I think Yangism is total innovationism, but let's uh, uh, put a little bit of glue on the holes that result with the UBI. So that's Yangism. I think that's I think all of these philosophies, by the way, have something to be said for them, even Marxism, because yes, there you have to ask yourself: Is there injustice? when the owners make a lot more than the workers. What tends to happen is, if the owners make much more than the workers, then new, more nimble companies go in and disrupt the industry. So when, uh, you know, if a, if a heart, you know, every town had a, a local, you know, deli or place where you buy food, the food was usually a little bit more expensive because, It was grown somewhere else and it was shipped to the store and whatever. But Walmart came in and disrupted the entire industry by figuring out a way to distribute food cheaply. And so they undercut the prices wherever they went. And for better or for worse, a lot of mom and pop food stores went out of business and Walmart became the king. So, and this also happens, this happens in every industry. Oh, you know, there might be big expensive cars like, In the 70s, everybody in the 60s, everybody bought like, you know, GM Cadillacs or Ford cars or whatever. And then Japan disrupted the car industry by sending in cheaper Toyotas and Hondas. High-end restaurants are disrupted by fast food chains. TVs get disrupted by cheaper TVs. So the thing that corrects the imbalances suggested by Marxism is just normal innovationism. If something's too expensive, someone will come along and innovate a cheaper version and start selling that. If you want to read more about that, it's Clayton Christensen's theory of disruption about how uh, industries get disrupted. Usually they get disrupted from below. Uh, An interesting exception is Apple, where the iPhone was more expensive than other phones and disrupted the entire phone industry because it had so many extra features and people were willing to pay for those features. So that's that's basically what I wanted to describe. Again, Marxism, socialism, uh, capitalism, innovationism, fascism, libertarianism, Trumpism, Obamaism, gangism. I hope you enjoyed your isms, and now you can go kick ass at a cocktail party and impress everyone. Believe it or not, it does work. Everyone gets impressed when I say, well, that's not what fascism is, but this is what Marxism is, boom, and I seem to know everything. When all I know is a few sentences about each. So hope you enjoyed this. Let me know. And you know what would be great is if you could rate and review this podcast. I would love it. I, 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 I'll just be honest. I wanna, I wanna know the podcast is helping people and is doing well. Feel free to tell me topics you would like me to cover or guests you would like me to have. And I really want to break into the top 100 of podcasts and, and it's based on how many reviews you get. So I have the downloads, but you know, I'd love to get more, hear what you're thinking, get more reviews, get more feedback. You can email me at altature at gmail.com or tweet me at Jaltature, Tell me what topics you would like, or tell me feedback on this episode or other episodes, or tell me what, uh, guests you would like me to interview and See you, see you next time. Thanks so much for, for listening to this simple guide to isms. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.